For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hey everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. We're going to touch uh, the latest uh, GOP soap opera at the end of this uh, at this podcast. But, but first, Alex, we, we have a special guest today, and it, it couldn't be at a better time. You know, there, there's a piece in the New Republic out today that I think sums it all up, and we'll, we'll put the, a link to that in our show notes. But it said that if we lose the fight to protect voting rights, we'll lose everything else. And that's why I'm I'm really uh, glad that Mark Elias uh, is with us today. Mark Elias served as the general counsel for Hillary Clinton and John Kerry's campaigns, is the founder of Democracy Docket, an advocacy group protecting the right to vote around the country. Mark, it's just a critical time. You know, I wanted you on the show before, but I think today just seems in a lot of ways more critical than ever. I'm glad you're with us. Thanks for having me. Set the table. What what in your you know after we we go through the election, uh, the insurrection, everything, and the, all the the battles. I mean, sixty four to one uh, against Trump in court uh, that you were involved in. Where are we now? I mean, there was this big sense of relief that we somehow got got past the the big the big threat to democracy, but it, it just seems to be ongoing. Yeah, and in some ways, it's it's gotten worse. You know. 2020 was a was a threat to democracy because Donald Trump was an, author, an authoritarian um, president who didn't respect the rule of law, democracy, uh, or democratic institutions. But for many of us, I think we hoped that with the end of Trump being president, the fever that gripped his party would break as well. But but that hasn't proved true. And let me let me give you a, a way to think about this. In late December, the um, state of Texas went to the Supreme Court in a failed effort to throw out the election results in four states. Now, it was a frivolous effort by an indicted attorney general of Texas. So you would have thought it would have attracted very little um, support or attention. It was immediately joined by 18 other Republican uh, state uh, attorneys general. And that worried me quite a bit. Uh, because it, it it suggested to me that that this um, uh, this anti democracy movement had 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 really spread further than I thought. But then, 126 members of the House of Representatives signed on to that same effort. Okay, so keep in mind that number 126. Then you fast forward two weeks to January 6th, and now there has been a bloody insurrection in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, people have been killed. Police have been dragged down the steps. Um, there has been mayhem uh, in the chambers. And it comes to a vote on the certification of the election. And 139 Republicans voted against certification. So actually, the forces against d- democracy actually gained 13 votes. So literally, as you 
go from before the violent insurrection to after the insurrection, opposing the certification of the president, gained 13 votes. And that tells you the trajectory that this has been on ever since. Liz Cheney was kicked out of the leadership of the House of Representatives, the Republicans, in a 15-minute meeting during which she was booed by a voice vote. So this is not getting better. We are moving from this being the crazy rhetoric of a failed one-term president into becoming policy of the state in state after state after state as they pass these laws. So, Mark, in the, you know, in the run-up and all those uh, to the election and, and, the, and the mess in between before the insurrection, you saw, you know, what, what, what did stand up in, institutionally were a lot of local Republicans, Secretary of State in, in Georgia, um, and a lot of, and the courts. Has the threat now breached into that, those areas too? Or, I mean, are these lawsuits that there's, they're clear and, and the laws that they're passing, because now these are, these are laws passed by legislators. So, uh, I think courts treat those differently than, than some of the shenanigans that the Republicans were up to, in, you know, in this, in the, the, like you said, these frivolous cases they have, is, they're going to have more standing to, to, to win some of these, or, I mean, where how far does this go? I mean, yeah. So I, I think the way to think about it um, is that um, we're not going to dig ourselves out of this anti-democratic mess through litigation. Now, that's a weird thing for me to say, since that's that's the tool that I bring to to bear. Um, you know, litigation is the is the last resort. It is what you do when the political branches fail. It's what happens when legislatures do the wrong thing um, or fail to do the right thing. It's what happens when election officials fail to do the right thing or do the wrong thing. Um, the problem is that, you know, as you, I think, allude to, states by and large get to set their election rules. Now, I happen to believe that the excesses we've seen in Iowa and in Georgia and in Florida, and Montana and elsewhere, make those laws vulnerable to court challenge. And I think we will win a number of, of those cases. But it, we can't count on every bad law being thrown out. Um, you know, at some point, we have to both change the, the minds of the, the lawmakers or have Congress pass federal laws. And we need to change the hearts and minds of the 70% of Republicans who, in a recent poll, said they believe that uh, the 2020 election uh, was uh, illegitimate. So it's a tall order. Um, and, you know, I feel sometimes like I am the kid with the thumb in the dike, you know, keeping the water. I forget, right. uh, you know, um, but the water's coming. How do you bring any of these GOP folks along to support that? Given what's going on in their base, and and like you said, this sort of growing tide, you know, almost. I mean, they see. I think HR one is almost. They've said it'd be apocalyptic for them. I mean, I, I, how do we get enough votes there? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a good question. I mean, the fact is, HR one would go a long way. It wouldn't solve everything, but it would solve an overwhelming majority of the problems that we're now seeing um, with these suppressive voting laws. Um, so I think it's it's really really important. The question of how you move Republicans, I, I think it is not um, realistic to assume that 
that bill is going to pass with any bipartisan support. So it would have to pass um, on only um, on only Democratic votes. So the filibuster would have to come into play on that. Well, yeah. So how do we move? How do we move the mansions of the world to get this thing done? Do you think it's just going to be more of these lawsuits and these apocalyptic regulations everywhere? And they finally say, okay, this is worth actually killing the filibuster for? Um, that I don't know. My my sort of role in this, I view as as twofold. Number one is to buy time um, uh, by hopefully winning law litigation. Uh, to challenge these unconstitutional laws and give mm -hmm. the breathing room for Congress to pass federal legislation and for states to come to their senses, for the state legislatures to let this craziness pass uh, beyond them. So number one, I view our role is to bring litigation to vindicate voting rights and buy time for the political process to work. The second is to call attention to it um, and and let people know just how serious a threat this is to our democracy. So, it, uh, look, uh, one of the things our listeners can do, obviously, is uh, support Democracy Docket, and uh, we'll put the link uh, to that in, in, in our show notes as well. But, you know, what's important for people to know about how they could help or get involved in this fight? I mean, is there, I mean, is it calling their legislatures? I mean, is it what, what can what can people do out there to help? Uh, you know, obviously, we got to go register voters, get people out to vote, exercise our our ballots. But is there anything they can do in this fight that uh, that would help? I'm going to say something that I learned from a <laughs> younger Joe Trippy as a younger Mark Elias, um, which is I think we oftentimes overlook the power of neighbor talking to neighbor, friend talking to friend people standing up in their town square. Now, some for some people, for you, your town square is quite large. It's a podcast. You go on national television. You, you, can, you can be heard by a lot of people. But, you know, part of what we need to do is to change people's view of what does it mean to let everyone vote? What does it mean to a society where you where you restrict people's vote. And that's gonna be done in conversations, um, conversations where people meet up at the local coffee shop or they, or they knock on each other's door. They, they speak about it over family dinners with their relatives and don't agree to them, with agree, agree with them. And so one of the things that I find frustrating is that people ask, what can they do to help? And in some ways, giving money, making phone calls is kind of the easy stuff. The hard stuff is, talking to your network, standing up in your town square and putting yourself out there about how important this is and not just looking the other way when someone says, oh, we don't want those people to vote. Like that's your moment to engage, not to disengage. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about that a lot, about getting, not just in your own network, but getting out of out of your, our silos and actually talking, yeah. you know, actually trying to have a conversation, even even if it's, uh, uh, you know, and you get a whole lot of, why would you talk to those Republicans? But it, no, we, we, that we have to convince that 70% or, you know, we can convince 10% of them, 20% of them that, that, you know, that, but it's by talking, it's having the conversations by, and not screaming and, you know, yelling at each other. That's not going to work. <laughs> right. And that's why I don't talk about it in terms of your own networks. I talk about it as your own town yeah. square. Because the notion of the town square is there are going to be people in your in the town square who are going to walk by as you're right. shouting who don't agree with you. 
right? When you're preaching on the corner, people are strangers or, or people who are not in your everyday life are going to hear, are going to hear you. So it's not just talking to other people who agree with you. It's talking to people who you have some connection to. That connection may just be you live in the same town. It may be that you went to the same school. It may be um, that you share a common interest. Uh, it may be that they're your relative, but, but talking honestly with them. They may be your clients, your customers, you, right? They're, they're, they're people who you can engage um, and, and not to shrink away from those conversations. See, that's the thing, Joe, is that too often I think what happens is people are very comfortable having these conversations where they know that everyone agrees with them, but once they're not sure, yeah. then they just kind of want to stay away from it. Not engaged, don't get, don't want to start that fight. So without, when there, there's no need to get into a fight, you can actually have a conversation, hopefully that, uh, I mean, we, you know, it's the, the client of civility too, that Trump brought along, but, uh, we need to to break through that. Yeah. What, what I see it almost, I mean, real fear uh, going into 2022, we've got the whole idea that an incumbent president, uh, you know, only three times in history has actually gained seats or held on uh, to a majority in, in the House, uh, I mean, or didn't lose seats, I mean. So that's there. We have reapportionment um, in the census where, you know, anywhere, uh, depending on you know, whether Cook Report or, or whoever, you can look at, you know, independent folks who who see basically Republicans able to draw another, be, either between 10 or three or four uh, more safe Republican seats than exist today, all pointing to losing the House of Representatives before you even get into the voter suppression stuff that they do. And and yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Exactly. No, well, the no. And then, and then the court cases <laughs> yeah. and all this, all these other things. So it really, right. the, it, you know, again, I go back to that feeling after uh, Biden wins uh, and particularly after the Georgia vote and two senators uh, who are not going to for elected um, the sense of relief. And what I'm seeing is even more fear. I mean, uh, me personally, that, that we've got to be even more engaged. Um, and as you said, in the meantime, the the wave on there uh, against after the insurrection keeps growing, you, you know, to, to, to put up these barriers, it just seems like they're still going to push as hard as they can. And, and we need everybody to, to realize that 2020, as much as the 2020, may have been a relief, 2022 could be just as bad, if not sure. worse. And, yeah. and so I don't know where you... Yeah, I, I mean, can... think think about it this way. I, I wrote this, um, and I think it's right, but you can point to, you can put a hole in it if I'm wrong. I, I think right now, you could be considered a member of good standing in the Republican Party and be <clears throat> um, uh, opposed to uh, free trade, uh, or support free trade. Right. I think you can be a Republican in good standing uh, and uh, uh, support more environmental regulation uh, or oppose more environmental regulation. I think you could even be a Republican in good standing in Congress and support more taxes or oppose taxes. The only thing you can't be in the Republican Party right now is in favor of voting rights. It's literally the fiber that holds their entire party together. 
And that is should be very, very concerning to people who care about democracy. It should be very concerning for those of us focused on the 2022 election, because that yeah. is their yeah. platform. <laughs> like there, there is no other defining feature to their platform other than this issue. And of course, we've got um, on our side, we've got a million things going on, right? We've got we've got a lot of things that we are worried about. Like I said, the Atlantic article said that if we lose the fight to protect voting rights, we'll lose everything else. They think if they don't win the fight to oppose voting rights, they'll they'll lose everything else. I mean, that right. that there's there, there's nothing left for them. Uh, but I'm not sure so, our side understands that as deeply as their side. Is my point? Yeah, exactly. No, that's what that's what it, what what worries me, uh, and why. I, you know, we, the, the show may start to, to be, uh, you know, a little, you know, crying into the wind here because for the last three or four times we've, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on as a guest was to make sure that we're starting to deliver this message that people get how, how, uh, how much at risk uh, things really are in 2022. And it's not, it's not going to be you in court or, it's all of us having to to have these conversations and to start start to dismantle um, this authoritarian, you know, anti democratic uh, impulse that's out there uh, as much as we can between now and twenty twenty two. And I think the only way to do that is to actually talk to the uh, talk to every have these conversations and and uh, and for people to get in, get involved locally uh, from the bottom up. I've talked about Ron Brownstein, who does, you know, has thought a lot about, you know, what's going on politically. Um, but he sort of says that, you know, the Republican Party um, is stacking sandbags against the tide of history. In other words, it, it's inevitable that the, the you know, that the, the Southwest, et cetera, will move. Um, and, that, you know, different demographic groups are moving to the Democratic Party. My worry is, that's not going to happen fast enough between 2020. It's between may may happen six or eight years from now or, or four, but we may if you if you suppress the and taken away voting rights, it'll never get there. Which is, I guess, what the Republicans have got to be driving them. Exactly. So the, I wrote a I wrote a piece on Democracy Docket actually called Consent to the Governed, in which I talk about this that um, in in 2020. Seven million more Americans voted for a Democrat for president than a Republican, and the election was close. It wasn't super close, but it was it was close. I forget the number in the Senate. It's in the article, but it's like twenty million more people have voted for Democrats in the current Senate than Republicans, and more. And the same, you know, there's more uh, votes for Democrats in the House than Republicans in the House, state legislatures, governors, right? Like no matter how you cut it, the Republican Party is now become an anti-majoritarian party. Like they have increasingly embraced anti-majoritarianism because it is their only way of making um, of com of competing. So remember, go back because I know you were involved in the two thousand four right. election. I tried to forget I was. that. Um, and Let's and see. remember, <laughs> um, uh, if you if you remember, you know. George Bush didn't in the 20, 2004 election, and yeah. as you know, yeah. you and I both worked hard against George Bush, so we're not apologists for him, but he didn't celebrate the fact that he won in 2000 yeah. by not winning the popular vote. Yes. Like that exactly. wasn't a point of his pride, right? right? That was actually yes. kind of a sore point with him 
that wanted to not be the person who lost the popular vote. The Republicans have given up winning the popular vote for president. Like that is now in the rearview mirror. Their whole way of winning elections moving forward is to let that, what used to be a need to win the majority, to them, then losing by 3 million votes, then moving losing by 7 million votes. You know, their next plan is to figure out how do we lose right. by 15 million votes and still win. Um, and part of it is, you know, is the rules of the game, but part of it is also figuring out right. how you keep certain people from voting because that's the other, that's the other mechanism. Well, the Senate and the Electoral College work for them, given the way, you know, Idaho has two senators, California has two senators, you know, it's, it's, it. So and the electoral college works that way too, but the only way they can make the house uh, is their ability because of the state legislatures to redraw lines, change voting rules in, in the state legislature, and, and Democrats, uh, you know, right. we just didn't really focus on a lot of that for too many years, and now that's the last bastion for Republicans. But they have it, um, and they're using it like there's no tomorrow because for them there may not be if they don't. Uh, suppress votes and and uh, uh, change the rules and uh, and you know reduce the rights of people to vote uh, you know and particularly target the way they do are you know a lot of voters who who are lower income and uh, don't have the ability to fight back or or fight for their rights uh, or do but it's often after the election and it's in court and people like you help make that happen but it it's uh, after the horses left the barn, it's going to be a lot tougher. Yeah. And look, um, there was a study that um, uh, that came out that looked at the effect of partisan gerrymandering. And what it found is that where, and this is looking at, I think, 70, the 70, 80, 90, 2000, and 2010. So it's looking over time. Um, and what they found is that where Republicans control the entire process, one can expect a 9% vote share advantage for Republicans. Where Democrats control the trifecta, control the entire process, they can expect a 0% partisan advantage. And, you know, that's, that's, that has been the reality of how this has worked. Um, yeah. You know, when people talk about both sides gerrymandering, they're really talking about apples and oranges. You know, yeah. I, I know you're a Marylander, uh, so everyone, you know, always says, yes, but what about Maryland? And the answer is, okay, so there's one seat in Maryland that people say is a democratic gerrymander. Now let's talk about, uh, now let's talk about uh, uh, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Virginia till very recently, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, like, you know, right. this yeah, one seat yeah, in yeah, Maryland yeah. is doing a lot of work. No, and the other thing is like, <laughs> when I, you know, when I look at it, you know, all the, the states that set up independent commissions, and they, there are some that have been set up in a Republican state, but for the most part, they're, you know, there's where the Democrats have everything. We, we, right. we create independent commissions to draw the lines. Uh, you just don't see that when they have the trifecta. Uh, they they draw the lines and they get that eight nine percent increase in their in their voter share in those districts by by gerrymandering and so you put that with these oppressive voting rights moves that they're making uh, and what it, look what's the most egregious thing you've seen of all the, in all the states so far that they they've tried to do in the voting rights or in the redistricting either one what's the what's the thing you see <laughs> well. 
redistricting is yes. just beginning. Um, so uh, for voting rights, look, I think that um, there's been a lot of attention paid to uh, the Georgia law and the Georgia law is a, is a bad law and I could walk through all the reasons why it's, it is so bad. Um, but you know, I'm gonna pick Iowa. Iowa actually had relatively, you know, uneventful elections in, in 2020. You know, there wasn't much that the Republicans could complain about on a partisan outcome basis. The local uh, election officials all celebrated their successes. Secretary of State talked about what, how, uh, how wonderful their elections were. The governor praised the elections. Uh, there was increased record turnout in the elections. You'd think not much, not much to do here. The, the, the state of Iowa, even before Georgia, um, then went about passing a law that um, makes voting by mail harder, shortens periods for voting by mail, uh, shortens the period for early voting, and uh, in a twist that right. dro you know, limits drop boxes, does, right. does all the usual stuff that you now see Republicans doing. But then the one that gets me is they also chopped an hour off election day. Literally, they shortened election day by an hour. And I have to say, in, in all of my years of practice, I'm trying to remember a state that shortened yeah. election day. Lengthen. I mean, you've had yeah. states that lengthen election yeah, day. Yeah, they lengthening our scene. <laughs> I haven't seen shorten either. So. You know, and so like, literally they made it harder to vote early, same day, by mail, early, like it, it's just, it's a pathology. And, and it is, it's, if you see that in a state like yeah. Iowa, which you know pretty well, has a pretty strong culture of not, you know, of not being hyper-partisan around yeah. their election administration. Um, it, it just tells yeah, you no, how I've always has thought Iowa was one of the fairer places that I've ever worked in. I mean, just the culture of the place and the way yeah. people think about it, but uh, it's just amazing. So Mark, one of the questions we always get is that mail-in voting piece. And it, it people always wonder, who does it really hurt? And it, don't you think it's a little short-sighted in that doesn't this kind of hurt Republicans either more historically than Dems? You mean the limiting limiting of early voting? Uh, I'm uh, limiting uh, of mailing, vote by mail. Vote by mail. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there are a couple of, couple of things to this. Um, the first is traditionally um uh, uh older white voters sure yeah on average i mean these are obviously only averages prefer vote by mail relative to younger voters and uh particularly black voters um so historically that that is true however there are two things to 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 that data that you need to be sort of attentive to the first is that before 2020. So now I'm talking about 2018 data, right? So before the, because 2020, the data is going to be a little hinky because of the, the pandemic about who prefers what. Um, but in 2018, as you may remember, there was a close election for governor and Senate in the state of Florida. Um, uh, Andrew Gillum lost by four-tenths of a percent. Bill Nelson lost by one-tenth of a percent. Um, some academics looked at the rejected mail ballots in that election. And what they found is that if you were 18 to 21 you, and you voted by mail, you had a 5.4% rate of rejection. If you were over 65, you had a 0.6% chance. So it means one out of every 20 ballots by a young person was thrown in the trash and one out of every 200 older person's ballots were, were not. And that would have made the difference though. In, yeah. In yeah. And if you were black, yeah. um, your rate of rejection was twice that if you were white. Jeez. So Yes, it is true 
it is true that vote by mail as a universe um, previously had been more Republican than Democratic. But when you look at the rules about how those ballots are counted and processed, um, which is oftentimes what we are all tinkering with here, yeah. not tinkering, it's what the legislatures, I'm not tinkering anything, it's what the legislatures are tinkering with here uh, in Georgia and in Florida. What they're doing is they are taking the edges off of the pieces that will, that will uh, they, they are not doing the things that will harm older white voters, and they are they are sharpening the edges, I should say, to the pieces that will trap um, younger voters and minority voters. Right. It's just it's to keep the right people from from voting, right, or the wrong people from voting. I guess, yeah, yeah. So think of think of it think of think of it this way: the two biggest reasons why you see that disparity on age and race um, are late received ballots. These are ballots that were put in the mail. Um, but didn't arrive on time because Florida requires ballots to be received by election day, um, not postmarked by election day. Um, so that's the that's one. And then the second is mismatched signatures. And so when you um, uh, when you ban ballot drop boxes or limit ballot drop boxes, you are pushing more ballots into the mails, which is going to increase the the aggregate number of rejections of young and and uh, black voters and Hispanic voters ballots, because that's already a disparity that exists. Um, and when you um, do the changes to signature matching that have been proposed, which were some of the hard fought victories we had last cycle, were to make these uh, signature matching laws um, fairer, that's also going to disproportionately negatively impact uh, young voters and voters of color. Although what's interesting about the signature matching, uh, it also seems to dis have a disproportionately negative impact on women um, because they oftentimes, uh, because of maiden names, they get their ballots rejected uh, for mismatching yeah. the name. So, okay, Mark, how does this all end? I mean, we're, how's this, how do we get out of this? Yeah. So look, um, as I said before, I think the, 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 the way out of this is through the political branches, right? The way out of this is for Congress to pass H.R. 1, the For the People Act, also known as S-1, uh, uh, and then the John Lewis um, uh, Voting Rights Restoration Act. So that's one way out of it. The second, though, is to convince um, the American people, people on the other side of this, that... Um, they should not view voting access as a win-lose proposition. That there is actually something that strengthens communities right. when we all vote. You know, I know, I know you're in Maryland and I'm uh, uh, in Virginia, but both of us spent um, enough time in New England to know that one of the charming things um, is the town meeting, you know, where literally you'll have these town meetings in these small communities throughout Maine and, uh, and uh, Vermont and New Hampshire and I think parts of Western Massachusetts where the town gets together and they will vote on like, you know, whether yeah. to yeah. buy another snowplow, <laughs> you know. And there's something that strengthens the community when everyone is participating in that. And the idea that we are now as a country 
going about trying to prevent people from participating, that actually weakens the entire community. And getting people to understand that, that forget about the outcome of the elections, as a process, um, it strengthens our country when everyone participates. I think that that's how it has to end. If it's going to end well, <laughs> that's how it's going to end. If we are not successful in doing that, then eventually it won't end well. Well, Mark, uh, thank you for all your efforts. You can follow Mark's work at democracydocket.com and on Twitter at Mark E. Elias. That's Mark with a C. We'll include those links in our show notes. Uh, Mark, you got any any other parting shots or questions? <laughs> no, just just um, thank you for everything you've done uh uh, you're doing on this podcast and you've done, uh, I'm a big fan. Thanks, Mark. Well, same here, right back at you. One thing I do want to check in with Alex on before we end this podcast is the latest in the Cheney GOP soap opera. Yeah. So Joe, obviously she's, she's out, uh, as of now they, they ousted her. And as Mark mentioned uh, earlier, they, they booed her during the voice vote, uh, after she, again, her crime was refusing to side with the big lie and, and, and President Trump. Well, she also said she wanted to make sure he never again gets near the Oval Office. He he can't like that. Neither can 70 percent, at least of the Republican well, he Party. Did. He called he called. And I, I never thought I'd see this day, but he called a Cheney and a war a major Democrat. Well, that quote, <laughs> which just, yeah, well, th- that one, no, that one might be more I fair. Mean, she's I, not her dad, so we but, can't do that to her. So. Meanwhile, uh, we do have kind of this moderate wave of Republicans like the former DHS guy, Miles Taylor, uh, Christine Whitman, Tom Ridge, haven't heard his name in a while. They're threatening to start a third party. So now all of a sudden it was the Trump side threatening a third party. Now it's the moderates. I mean, is this the moment of reckoning or is, is this, are they just going to get rolled over? No, look, I think that, I don't know about that group. I mean, we'll see. Uh, I mean, it's good that 100, 150 uh, Republicans have, have formed a, a group and, you know, are, are basically talking about, you know, either leaving the party, starting a new party, reforming, uh, you know, it's always, that's always good. Um, but the, I still think that, and I've been saying this for, I don't know, three or four shows, that I, I think Liz Cheney, if she keeps this up could be she could be the straw that breaks that camel's back over time i mean not she's not going to be speaker but she she may well be president other people are now starting to say that because i do think look there's going to be a whole bunch of trump wannabes running uh for that nomination in 2024 i don't think trump will be one of them um and so if he isn't running you'll have five six seven eight maybe ten trump Trump wannabes running and she, you know, you need to win those early states with 18, 20, 24. Trump only won Iowa, I think, with 24% of the vote, if I remember right. So she could get there. And I think, uh, I think so the combination of them throwing her out, somebody who, with her speaking with, you know, forcefully on this and is, you know, very, strong and committed to making the fight with a bunch of other Republicans, you know, forming this group uh, to start and threatening to start a third party. We'll see if they actually do that. But I do think uh, you are, I think Cheney's the most important event. I mean, I think what is going on with her because of who she is and the way she's bringing the fight um, without any backing down 
That's something that I think could continue to grow. And strength like that tends, and by the way, we saw this with Trump, that people respond, starts to bleed people to their, in their direction. And so, look, there are Republicans out there who are tenuously hanging on to the Trump side of things, but can she break some off and start to grow it uh, the way Trump did it in the opposite direction in 2020, uh, 2016, excuse me. I think, uh, I think that's a real important piece to keep looking at and watching. Um, and I know people say, well, that's scary. I'm, the first time I, I can't believe you're rooting for Liz Cheney. I'm not, look, I, I, I am rooting for any Republicans who are trying to talk truth to power and the power is their base right now, knowing that that means possible the end of their careers. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, Republican consultants that I respect who put put it all on the line when they they started the Lincoln Project uh, and and Liz Cheney, uh, others who had who were like you know rushed out of the, the House or the Senate or retired because uh, they knew their days were numbered in, in the parties that exist. Uh, all of them. Uh, we shouldn't be pushing them away from us. We should be pulling them in there and, and, and working together to stop this authoritarian, anti-democratic threat. Thanks for listening to That Trippy Show. We'll be back next Friday. As usual, if you have a race you want us to spotlight or a question, please submit it on iTunes in the reviews or, at, or email us at thattrippyshow at gmail.com. See you next Friday. And check the show notes for uh, ways to follow Mark and uh, check out the piece in the New Republic article that I mentioned earlier. Thank you. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big-